Hello everybody and welcome back to the Anita Po Show and the Bitcoin for Fairness series. In this show, we talk about the role that Bitcoin is playing in enabling economic empowerment for individuals and communities by providing fair and open access to a global financial network. My guest today is Karel van Wyk, a Bitcoin pioneer from South Africa. We met in Stellenbosch and um, he found out about Bitcoin as early as in 2010 and being a technically skilled entrepreneur, he realized Bitcoin's potential to change the world very early on. He was the co-founder of Luno and stayed with Luno until 2019 and now he's building his own projects. And as a long-time Bitcoiner, he has some very interesting views about Bitcoin that might not really be mainstream Bitcoin talk. So that was very interesting to talk with him. As always, you can watch this interview on YouTube or listen to it in your favorite podcast app. If you want to try something new, try a lightning-enabled podcast app like the Sphinx Chat app, the Breeze app and the Fountain app. Thanks for supporting Bitcoin for Fairness. Go out to the Human Rights Foundation, Leben.io and OKCoin. That's it. Now enjoy the show. Learn Bitcoin will teach you the why and how to use Bitcoin. To safely navigate this financial technology, you'll need the knowledge that this book provides. Jameson Lopp, co-founder and CTO, CASA. Order your copy now at learnbitcoin.link. That's learnbitcoin.link. Okay, so then. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Great Welcome. sitting with you at uh, uh, Stellenbosch. Thank you for the invitation and for picking this uh, place for doing our interview. Karel van Wyk. Yes. Welcome. Thank you so much. And um, we're going to talk about Bitcoin adoption in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I think you are one of the Bitcoin pioneers here. Can we say so? Yes, you can. When? Uh, typically, I'm, I, I, I try to be a bit more modest, but in this case, I feel like <laughs> I've been around since uh, the very early days. It's true. Yes. Okay, so uh, when did you find out about Bitcoin and how? Well, um, as a university student, I spend a lot of time on, on internet forums, specifically Reddit. Mm. And I mean, on Reddit is one of the first places where people started talking about Bitcoin. So this was in 20, 2010. I was about a year late um, oh. missing the launch, but it was still early days. And um, from my background, I realized that it had huge potential not only for South Africa, but also for the whole world. And I immediately tried convincing people that um, this is something to look into. Strangely, met a lot of resistance. Very few people actually bought into this idea. And, and what was the, the concept, what, what you were saying because of your background? Mm -hmm. What is your background and what made you uh, realize the potential of Bitcoin already back then? So my, um, my background is in electronic engineering and computer science. That's what I studied. Um, and I've always been an entrepreneur. So in high school, I started selling computers. That was a nice side business for a, for a high school, school student. And then after university, instead of looking for a job like a normal person, <laughs> um, some friends and I, two friends and I met up and we decided we we're going to start a mobile gaming company because there mm -hmm. was some some good growth in mobile gaming at that time and uh, one of the things that that um, we struggled with a lot 
was the circular economy inside of these mobile app platforms. So this was kind of still early days, App Store and Google Play, Google Play Store have, weren't as big yet. Um, so we had the social network in South Africa called Mixit. I don't know if you've heard of Mixit. Mm -hmm. a massive social um, network. And so we, we deployed some games on this mm -hmm. network. We had hundreds of thousands of active users every month, but we struggled to monetize. Um, so very early on, we realized that there's high friction in the kind of payment systems that exist today or in, in that day. And the world needed a better solution. So when Bitcoin came across um, our way, we realized that this was an opportunity. So it's a, a global uh, system and there was potential opportunity for small, smaller micropayments to facilitate um, online experiences. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's what we're only just starting to see today. It's taken a while. Yeah. It has. So um, what were the first steps for you um, to, to start to work with Bitcoin? Or what, what, what were the first use cases yes. use, you used it for? Because I think back then it was very complicated yes. uh, to, to use and hold and, and, and I mean, yes. buy Bitcoin. And acquire it, yes. That was one of the big problems. There was no way in South Africa to acquire it except uh, if you knew somebody. So if there was some forum and you could connect with somebody that had it. And the most popular way to buy Bitcoin then was on Mount Gox. Mm -hmm. So you would send international wire transfers all around the world, go to Japan, and eventually you could maybe buy some Bitcoin on Mount Gox. And then a lot of people I know unfortunately lost a lot of money when that exchange got hacked. So I looked at that and I thought, that's not for me. But at the time, it was reasonable to purchase a couple of GPUs and start mining Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I plugged a couple of graphics cards into my computer, started mining this thing. And uh, then the next obvious step is what do you do with it? So I started looking around and there were some places that were selling socks. So I think I bought <laughs> socks that are worth 3 million rand today. <laughs> yeah. Alpaca socks. Yes. And um, I bought some computer equipment and I spent most of what I mined, unfortunately. I mean, I, at the time, the use case for me, and it still is, is open source money. Um, I know probably 90%, 99% of people use it to speculate and try to get rich quick. But for me, it's always been about a payment mechanism. So I've mined it and then I spent it. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the first kind of um, attempt I made at, at getting more involved and contributing was um, at that stage, we had a postgraduate lab at the university called the, the Naspers Media Lab. So I had some connection with Naspers. I don't know if you know Naspers. It's one of the big media houses um, in South Africa. Um, and they've got digital division. So we were working with the digital online division. And I spoke to the head of digital and said, look, this Bitcoin thing, there's potential. We really need to look at it. I think it's going to change the world. So he said, okay, well, you know, um, I value your opinion. We're going to look into that. Uh, they requisitioned a study and they came back and said, Yes, there's some potential, but we think uh, NFC payments are a lot more promising. So <laughs> <laughs> they said, no, we're not going to do anything with that. So um, unfortunately, I didn't get more involved with Bitcoin at that stage. But what's interesting about that story is many years later, Naspers actually invested in uh, Luno's A round. Mm -hmm. So eventually, I think they came around to <laughs> the same conclusion that I had in about 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. So... Uh, but what happened afterwards? So you didn't go into it. What did you do then? So um, uh, 
there was some other payment technologies interesting at the time as well. So in particular, um, mobile payments wasn't really a thing in South Africa. It wasn't very prevalent. So I was uh, one of the early engineers recruited at SnapScan. Mm-hmm. SnapScan is, is fairly popular today in South Africa. It's a QR mobile QR payment system. And the partner, the banking partner for that project was Standard Bank. I think Standard Bank is maybe the biggest or second biggest bank in South Africa. And we were working with their head of innovation. And I spoke to him about Bitcoin. I was at the time just talking to everybody about Bitcoin, trying to orange pull everyone. So I spoke to him about it and said, well, have you heard about it? I think it's interesting. Same story. I think it's interesting. I think it's going to have a big impact in the world. And... I got the opposite response. He said, yes, actually, I know about it. I'm very interested in it. Mm-hmm. And would you be interested in pitching me a pilot project idea? So that night, I told my now wife, then girlfriend, look, I'm not going to be sleeping tonight. This is one of those all-nighter uh, situations. Spent all night on the computer, wrote a project proposal, tried to get as much data and information as possible and pitch it to Standard Bank the next day, and they, they agreed. So we built a, a pilot for Standard Bank, integrated, fully integrated banking product mm-hmm. um, where you could buy Bitcoin, sell Bitcoin, and send it out using your Standard Bank account. In t- 2000? This was 2013, 2013. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the head of innovation and the head of compliance at a bank sees things very differently. So the head of innovation said, <laughs> cool, we're running an innovation project, and the head of compliance seeing this said, there's no ways we're ever launching this, so let's just kill the project. Mm-hmm. But by that time, we built up a, a, quite a competent team. So at that time, we already had um, Timothy Stranix. He's the CTO of Luno, and he's actually one of the original founders of BitX, the exchange that eventually became Luno, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, Marcus, who's the CEO of Luno. So they were, everyone was involved already in this Standard Bank project. And Marcus was, uh, I think, the one that said, look, guys, we can continue building banking project, products and selling it to banks, but I, I think there's a much bigger opportunity in the B2C market. Let's build the exchange. There was no exchange in South Africa at the time. Let's build out the exchange and focus on that. And uh, that's where Luna eventually came from. So mm-hmm. I think that was a massive success, and, and Marcus was correct calling that. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did it go, go then from uh, this idea from the Standard Bank to founding Luno and you were a co-founder of Luno? Yeah, so I, I was, a, I guess, a technical co-founder. Uh, my strength is in, like I said, software development, um, whereas Marcus was more the business development driver. Um, and like I said, he, he called it and said, let's, let's pivot mm-hmm. the company to a B2C. Let's focus on Bitex. Um, that, that grew, it got quite a lot of traction initially. But the problem was there was, I think, at least one or two other exchanges globally with that uh, brand name Bitex. I mean, it's a common, pretty common yeah. name, right? So all, all the time we were thinking about the brand and, and how to establish it as, a, um, as something that's unique, standing apart. Um, and, and during that time, Marcus always, always convinced us to think bigger, think bigger, always thinking too small, think bigger. So pushing out into more emerging markets, growing into Europe eventually. And then one day um, he called me, it was a Sunday and I was having lunch with my family. He called me up and he said, I've got a new name for the company. I was a little bit skeptical, said, okay, let me hear it. And he said, Luno. 
So I don't know if you know, but Luno is an Esperanto word. Have you, you know about Esperanto? The yes, language? I know yes. Esperanto. It's, it's yeah. a, the idea is that it's a, like yeah. a global yeah. uh, language. So um, Luno in Esperanto means moon. And I said, man, let's go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. It's actually in many languages yes. it means moon. Yeah, yeah. Luna, so to the moon, yeah. the loon, yeah. of course. Um, so I fell in love with the name uh, instantly, and that's where, where Luno um, got its name from. But of course, the beauty of Esperanto is it's like Bitcoin. It's a global language. Exactly. And also, I think the, the guys who built the Raspberry Blitz, Fulmo, oh. Fulmo is also the Esperanto name for lightning or for, for, for thunder really? um, or something, like, like bolt, maybe okay. like thunderbolt. I didn't yeah. know that. That's yeah, very I think interesting. It's, yeah. Okay, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you co-founded Luno in, I mean, it was then yes. just a name, so it was founded already before yes. SpeedX. Yeah, so I guess, and, yeah. And how, how many years have you been working with Luno? So my involvement started, I, I suppose, in 2013 when we um, worked on that initial banking product and it ended in 2019. Okay, so three years ago. Yes, three years ago. So that was about six, six years that I was involved with Luno. Mm -hmm. And how was the growth? back then like how has it been yes I'm, i mean the growth is it's been insane i just spoke to uh, one of my colleagues this morning and um, he likened it to a gold rush and i really think it was a gold rush for not necessarily always the best reasons um we can talk about that mm. uh, it is something i do want to talk about but uh, but the growth itself was insane like i saw some statistics this morning that last year there's something like maybe 15%, estimated 15% of the South African population has some exposure or, or had some exposure to, to some crypto, mm -hmm. uh, predominantly Bitcoin. So in mm -hmm. South Africa, predominantly Bitcoin, some Ethereum. Um, but it, it's crazy to me that we're talking about millions and millions of people in a country where, um, I mean, we've, we've, we have a massive informal sector, a massive informal economy of not necessarily... Um, very well of people. Yeah, but who who do you think are the people who are ab are able to like invest, hold, or use Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? So so, so in, invest and hold everyone. That's 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 one of the eye-opening things for me was that it seemed that it did not um, stop at any LSM boundary. It crossed crossed all boundaries and borders. Again, not always for the best reasons, mm. but. Uh, primary use case for people is um, to invest and to speculate. Mm. So, so, yeah, I guess to answer your question, ev everyone. <laughs> so all social classes, you All think? social classes yeah. in South Africa, yeah. It, it, it's always an interesting experience when, when you um, go through the airport. This happened to me once, uh, went through airport security and the security agent stopped me because he, he saw my Luno uh, backpack. And I thought, okay, yes, some trouble now, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen now. And he said, oh, uh, you work for Luna. I said, yes, I work for Luna. Said, yes, I've invested <laughs> using your app. Can you tell me a little bit more about this and, and Bitcoin and everything? I said, yeah. okay, cool. We can talk a little bit about it. And that, that kind of experience has happened um, more frequently than I would have anticipated. Any time that I've wore mm -hmm. a Luna t-shirt or something like that, people would just approach me and walk up to me and start talking about Bitcoin. Of Again, all social classes. Yeah. 
So I'm reluctant to wear this T-shirt anywhere yes. often, like I'm doing it for the videos and stuff, because, um, yeah, most people also want to talk then. And on yeah. the other hand, it's a little bit of privacy and security thing to of not show it. Of course, it's bad optics. Yeah, I mean, yeah. especially here, we just drove through, like, across, like uh, the side of Kaya Licha. Yes, yes. And if you see that, like, these differences between rich and poor here, it's mm -hmm. really very, a big divide. Yeah, yeah. there's a huge divide between rich and poor in South Africa and unfortunately the divide has been growing. Mm. So it's been worsening um, and it continues to worsen. And that's a big part of the reality we face every day. It's very sad. Uh, it, I think it affects everyone in the country. It's, it weighs heavily on our, um, I guess, societal psyche. Uh, and the question is whether something like Bitcoin could have a positive impact on that. Mm. Um, I think maybe Maybe you, you would look more favorably to that. I, I wonder. I'm still, I'm not an economist or uh, I've, I'm not uh, good in terms of thinking of, of economic benefits. I'm more from a technical point of view, but yeah, I guess that's the open question. Yeah, exactly. So um, what are the, the use cases you see here for South Africa mm -hmm. where you really think that an open source money can help most parts of the population? Mm. So the optimistic side okay the optimistic side i do when it, when i think about use cases and 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 possible solutions i do tend to break up the the general um class of end user so by um probably by income so so if it's for for low income people there's a different use case than for high income people so let's talk about um people that are that are le less advantaged if we look at the South African economy, I saw another statistic this morning that um, maybe 90% of it is based on cash. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the month when people get paid, what is the first thing that they do? They go stand in a very long queue at an ATM and they withdraw everything in cash and then they hold the cash because they trust the cash. It's there, it's in their hand. Um, and there's a low level of trust when it comes to banks and maybe the government as well. So, so, so everybody's using cash and there's a lot of inherent risk with that, a lot of overhead and costs and I do believe and this is actually an opinion that's changed for me over the past couple of years with the lightning but I do believe there is a strong use case to be made that we can leapfrog the banks from cash into something like a, a lightning type of network where we've got peer-to-peer um, -peer transactions that you hold you're the custodian of it the the similarities with cash is, is stronger than with a bank account so I do believe there's a use case for that. And then obviously for um, richer people, it represents an alternative investment class, definitely. So um, I think for in terms of speculation investment, it's also a use case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think for payments like global payments, if you like in the richer part of the mm -hmm. population and you may have a business or something and you have uh, global trade, then Bitcoin can also, of course, be uh, an advantage mm -hmm. to you. Um, so I think you're a proponent of a circular economy. That's yes, that's exactly right. I, I don't think we're going to ever make this work if we don't get circular economy economies established. 
I think so too, actually. I mean, I think there's a strong use case for Bitcoin being the digital gold and, mm -hmm. and a store of value for longer periods. Uh, but these, like, building generational wealth and stuff, you know, all this rhetoric we hear mm -hmm. mostly from the US uh, mm -hmm. libertarian uh, uh, side of Bitcoiners, I'm also like, I wouldn't say things like that because you mm -hmm. don't know if people really can build that. And especially for the poorer people, mm -hmm. What is generational wealth? I mean, exactly. they need to feed their children and themselves yeah. first. Um, so I also think that there's a strong use case of maybe the... I'm also more interested in the side that Bitcoin is digital cash, as Satoshi wrote it in the white paper. Yeah. Because we need it, basically, because um, we it has all the positive properties of cash, like being private, mm -hmm. being uh, not being able to take away from the people as it happens, like on a daily basis, basically, yeah. in many African countries. So where do you see the, the problems um, or the, maybe the, the, the obstacles to becoming, like Bitcoin becoming digital cash and being used as that in a circular economy? Mm -hmm. well, the, um, again, you can look at it from an economic point of view or from a technical point of view. And as, a, as an engineer, I tend to first look at it from a technical point of view. So. I mean, as we know, in, in 2017 with the block, um, the block wars, there's legitimate concerns about whether the technology itself scales, whether it scales to mm. the uh, kind of capacity that's needed to onboard everyone. And I think we can talk about that separately, but I think there's a strong use case to be made that, that Lightning has the potential to solve it. It's, a, it's one big experiment. It remains to be seen, but I, I'm, I feel positive about it. Uh, but the, the primary obstacle is, as it has always been, volatility. Um, and that's an, uh, more of an economic obstacle. So there, I, I, I don't know much about uh, what the future looks like. But the problem is, like you say, um, the people have to feed their families today. And, and the volatility does play a big role. Mm. Yeah, but I think with Lightning, they now at least have the chance also to buy Bitcoin or to save it maybe, maybe because you can save like 50 cents a, yes. a month, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, now I'm... <laughs> well, um, no, just... the, the question is, can we, uh, can we make it work given that there is high degrees of volatility? Mm -hmm. And there are some ways to think about it where it works better. So I, I know that you um, might be meeting the Bitcoin Ikazi yeah. guys a little bit later, uh, and they're doing fantastic work. We have this conversation quite a lot because I'm more on the concern side. Like, are we pushing this speculative uh, kind of experiment on, on vulnerable people? And how does that impact their lives? And then um, I talked to Arman from Bitcoin Ikazi yeah. about it. And I guess what uh, the, the current view on that is, well, let's, let's add on, let, let's add on top of as an extra mm -hmm. so that the impact um, is, is less, less um, bad on the downside and on the upside, there's a, there's a huge potential. Mm -hmm. Because if it grows, then, then they win on the upside. Um, if it drops, then they, they lost a little bit of extra. They didn't lose base um, remuneration. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, maybe also uh, stablecoins on Bitcoin can help here. Yeah, stablecoins on Bitcoin. Um, now we're talking on the technical side. Uh, I know uh, um, Taro was built now on Lightning mm -hmm. with Taproot. And, then we have Rootstock. Um, yeah, and Rootstock. Uh, that, that kind of stuff, I'm kind of 
not as interested in it. I, I think I Bitcoin that's itself. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about that. Why? Because we already have uh, these existing systems. Um, we already have stable coins. And at the end of the day, there's some, you need some kind of uh, entity to issue it, I suppose. And that, that, that uh, always has some inherent risk in it. Mm, when it's pegged one to one to Bitcoin? But is it a stable token if it's pegged? You're talking about yeah, I something I talk that's... about the, the side chain, yeah. Right. Uh, well, I mean, if it's pegged one to one to Bitcoin, why don't you just use Bitcoin? Or am I misunderstanding you? Uh, yeah, I mean, Rootstock is pe like the side chains are pegged one to one to Bitcoin. Right. Or merge mined with Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rootstock, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I only, I, I know from Dollar OnChain, which is a stable coin on Bitcoin, on, on money on-chain, which is itself built on Rootstock. Right. Uh, so there are a lot of DeFi projects in Bitcoin at the moment. But I also think that it would be also important to build a lightning network um, mm -hmm. faster, maybe. Yeah, and building it faster, um, there was a counter argument I had to the lightning network. Well, I mean, there's a lot of counter arguments. Um, but it was interesting to me that somebody said, well, they feel like at the moment it seems to be mostly enthusiasts driving uh, the development and adoption of the network but that's always the case i mean right so that was that was that was why it was interesting to me because i said oh it will never scale economically and uh, it's only just enthusiasts driving it and i thought to myself isn't that the best way to yeah to bootstrap something you've got enthusiasts that care deeply about something that's willing to put their own time and energy and money into something that's how you built them. That's how um, open source things be built anyway. That's how every startup is built by an entrepreneur startup. with a heart and, uh, and people who want to build something. Yeah, exactly. And so what's um, to, to your question, what's been um, very motivating for me is to see the amount of enthusiasm that has been increasing for Lightning uh, and in the development of the Lightning Network. So I think we're, we're on, a, on an uptrend, definitely. Mm -hmm. And that's very exciting. Yeah. So I just uh, saw one of your tweets uh, this morning, um, I think regarding the number of nodes. And I saw that like Germany and South Africa is a little right. bit uh, of the same size from population yes. wise. And in Germany, we have like 1,430 nodes, public Bitcoin yes. and Lightning nodes. And here it's only 14. Yes, 14. But uh, the, I added one, so there's 15. <laughs> so the adoption rate of crypto and Bitcoin here is much higher, but the number of nodes is yes. much lower. So why is that? And um, what do you think can we do to, I mean, maybe we can't do anything about it, but um, to incentivize the enthusiasts mm. to run their own node? Yeah, so I mean, that is definitely happening. And um, what I mean is enthusiasts are running their own nodes. And what you have to keep in mind is when we look at uh, the node counts by country, very often, um, let's say somebody's using an umbral node or something, mm. that thing gets prepackaged with uh, Tor networking. Yeah. So you won't see that node uh, pop up on, on a South African or, or map of the world and see place in South Africa. Um, so we can't really know how many nodes are here, but, but to your point, uh, if you just look at public node counts, then it's very obvious in Germany there's more. It's a good assumption to make. So um, again, we have to look at the, the, the makeup of the population. And like I said, my view is that there is adoption across all LSMs, all social classes, but the social class that can afford to have a stable internet connection, mm -hmm. purchase uh, computer equipment that's dedicated to running a Bitcoin node, 
uh, is very, very small. That, mm -hmm. that proportion of the population is small. And so naturally, there will be very few people um, in South Africa running nodes relative to Germany. Mm. Um, yeah, I yeah. guess that's uh, the main argument I would make. Mm. And um, what are the possibilities here to earn and spend Bitcoin? Like to be a circular economy, we need like possibilities for the people, like for the shop owners uh, or the street sellers in Bitcoin Ikasi, they earn lightning, mm. but where can they spend it? Yeah, so their suppliers need to accept it so yeah. they can again spend it and bootstrap the circular economy. <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yes, so they, okay, they have to be able to spend it, bootstrap the circular economy and their suppliers need to accept it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, interesting thing there is that we actually built a merchant API with Luno that was running from 2015 to 2018, 19, and it got shut down. And the, the reason of that, uh, for that is because it just became very expensive for on-chain payments, mm -hmm. for on-chain transactions. I know there's, you can talk about zero confirmation payments and you can talk about optimizing fees and everything, but at the end of the day, it didn't work out well. And I like talking about that. We can if you want to go into the technical details, but the point is it didn't work. Um, and so it got shut down. And so now with, with the Lightning, it's still relatively new, but it feels to me like it solves that payments use case a lot better. If you want to uh, buy a coffee, um, you don't want to be standing in line for 10, 30 minutes waiting for your transaction to clear if that's what they need. Whereas with Lightning, it's, it's direct and it's instant. Um, and so that's something that I'm working on now uh, is a, a Lightning payments for mer traditional merchants, making it easy for traditional point of sales and online merchants in South Africa to accept Lightning payments. So hopefully if I can succeed in that, it's going to be become easier to bootstrap that circular economy if we can get retailers on board, suppliers on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you built a like a software where you can buy vouchers for electricity. Electricity vouchers. Yes. So, I mean, that, it's not new. Uh, a lot of people have actually done this with not only Bitcoin payments, um, all kinds of like Ethereum, whatever. So, so it's possible. But um, the reason I built this app, it's called Lightning Watts, where you can spend your Bitcoin, purchase electricity. It's kind of like just a nice way of representing that um, that circle of mining takes electricity and then you get Bitcoin and then you can spend Bitcoin, you get electricity, you can mine some more. Uh, that's the one reason. It's just a nice way of uh, representing that uh, solution. But then the other uh, reason I bought it was to research Lightning specifically, research the tech behind it and look at the, um, the way that you um, facilitate payments with it. And what I found was that it's far more suited for payments than on-chain Bitcoin for, for a lot of reasons. Um, and one very powerful mechanism that I built into the app that's not really possible with on-chain is that with the Lightning payment, the receiver has a fair um, guarantee that they will receive the payment once, once there's a commitment. But the payment is only settled once the receiver releases the, the, the hash secret or basically um, at the end of the day, the receiver can decide whether they settle or cancel that payment that they have received already. And that is a, a strong analogy with credit card payments where you've got a reserve 
and a clear or a reserve and a cancel. Um, and I think for that reason, it integrates really well with existing merchants. It, for them, it's much easier to understand because they're used to credit cards. And if you need to um, issue a refund, so for example, with my application, uh, it issues an electricity voucher for your electricity meter, but not all meters are supported. Mm -hmm. So now you've paid me. Uh, I try to issue the voucher and the system says, sorry, I'm not able to generate the voucher. Now what do I do? With an on-chain payment, I would have had to contact you, get your refund address. I would have to send another payment, uh, more on-chain fees. With Lightning, I just cancel. I just say, let's cancel this payment and you get your Lightning back straight away. Um, so, so I think there's, there's a lot of potential in just in the technology that's been developed in the past, what, four or five years mm -hmm. to address the needs of traditional, like I said, brick and mortar physical merchants as well as online merchants. Mm -hmm. And what are your plans with that app? Or do you have new ideas that you want to try? So the, the idea of the app is actually, it's a business card. It's just to demonstrate that we um, that, that the technology works. Um, and if we're sitting in a business meeting with somebody, I can say, install Moon Wallet on your device. Um, I'm sending you some Satoshis that takes, what, not even 10 seconds. And then I can show them the application. They can purchase electricity. And again, it doesn't even take 10 seconds. So it's a nice way to mm -hmm. demonstrate physically how it works. But the, um, the, the aim is to build a company that, I, like I said, that is a gen general lightning payment um, facilitator or payment provider. And generally what we see is that merchants want to still be settled in RAND, still be settled in fiat. That's fine. Um, the, the, the problem that, that we're actually solving is for those that want to spend cryptocurrencies. Merchants that want to hold, accept and hold cryptocurrencies, I think that's a different solution. Um, and we can talk about centralized versus decentralized solutions. But I think for that use case, a decentralized self-custody solution is better. Whereas with uh, um, something where the merchant prefers RANS, fiat, and there needs to be a conversion, it's still a lot easier with a centralized solution. So I'd, like, mm -hmm. I know centralized solutions is frowned upon in this space, but I do think there's a case to be made that we need these bridge, um, so centralized bridge solutions to get us to a point where everybody can be self-custodians of their own money. So um, yeah, uh, I guess, what, what our strategy is, is kind of twofold. On the one hand, it's to onboard merchant aggregators. So we, we kind of want um, payment providers that already service lots and lots of merchants and then approach them and say, we can do a very, very simple, clean lighting integration for you. Um, and, and that's a good use case because they, they think about the kind of fees they pay the credit card providers and mm -hmm. they're upset about it because it's very, very high relative to their profit margins. So we can go with the competitive um, alternative. Um, so that's the one prong. That's kind of, let's say that's the chicken. But we also need to solve the egg side of it, right? So we need to make it easy for the people who want to spend the crypto. So first of all, we're creating supply of merchants where you can spend a Bitcoin, but then we need to drive up demand. Um, and there's an interesting disparity because if you have a general generic lightning wallet on your phone, it's not necessarily possible for that merchant to display a lightning QR. So the second um, part of our solution is to have a little bridge app and it's basically just a scanner. 
So it'll scan, let's say you go to a retailer and the retailer has their own proprietary QR standard. So they'll display that. You scan it with the Bridge app and the Bridge app generates a Lightning invoice, passes you to your Lightning Moon wallet or whatever. You click pay and then everything in the background um, is settled behind the scenes. So that's a two-pronged approach. We want to assist merchants um, with the, uh, accepting lighting payments, and then we want to make it much, much easier for people to spend their lighting as well. Mm -hmm. And you said something about self-custody in that uh, use case, but also you said something about centralizing that mm -hmm. as a service. I think for, for entrepreneurs or for businesses, a centralized approach would work because mm. they might not have the time to learn about self-custody and run their own nodes. Exactly. It's, it's two different use cases. Yeah. I, um, we, when we, uh, I used to um, speak at conferences for Luno, and one of the, um, without fail, one of the comments that came from the audience every time was people saying, well, you know, you're building a centralized solution again. It's a centralized exchange. This goes against the, um, you know, the ethos of the, the community. And, and I tell them, look, I totally agree, actually. But at that time, again, decentralized exchanges didn't, it was, there was mm -hmm. very little volumes and liquidity. Um, and at the end of the day, people, the general end user wants to be able to pick up a telephone and call somebody and ask them what is wrong, what's going on. Mm. You can't do that with a decentralized service. That's my thinking now again. Let's, let's build these centralized bridges and then as adoption naturally grows, we can kind of bootstrap adoption. People will naturally tend to educate themselves and, and, and start building more self-custody solutions. Mm -hmm. Is there something you want to add regarding the Lightning Network? Thoughts, ideas about it? Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, so yeah, you'll have to be more specific. <laughs> no, just because I was thinking, so maybe we go back to the general topic of Bitcoin, because you said something before we started that interview about fairness, yes, that you fairness. like the approach, but as I understood, you're not quite sure if it really works no, or if Bitcoin is for, really for anyone. Right. Uh, so I guess we already kind of touched on it a little bit, and that is, um, the, it's just that my fear is when it comes to um people that are economically vulnerable, promoting it in those communities, um, it's my, the question I have is, is it responsible? Mm. Or how do we do it responsibly mm -hmm. without um, negatively impacting their life? Because, like, I mean, you know, the worst case scenario is there's heavy volatility, the price drops and they sell because they, they, they need liquidity. Mm. Um, but that has nothing to do with the Lightning Network. The Lightning yeah. Network, my views are very much on the technical side there. And, Mm -hmm. that works. So what, what, what are your ideas? I mean, how can we bring Bitcoin education or Bitcoin in a way uh, responsible to these people? Like, okay, so what, you mentioned the word education. That is the, the main, the primary way um, that we can do it responsibly is if it uh, comes with education. Because unfortunately, we might have that mindset, but there are probably more, way more people than us trying to promote their own tokens and scams yeah. and ponzi's and presented as legitimate crypto use cases and they don't educate they just say guess what uh you can get rich quickly mm -hmm. if you engage with this and i've unfortunately i've seen that um a lot and it's made me extremely sad um i even went through a depressive period after after um we started seeing bitx take off and i started realizing you know what a lot of people are actually just buying into scams Mm. Um, and the only way to to 
counter that is with good education, but for education, you need communication channels. Um, and something that I've seen in South Africa that, that's been very uh, promising for me is this, this community efforts to translate a lot of the material um, and mm -hmm. educational material in the space. Because you can think, not everybody, my first language is, isn't English, and a lot of people in this country, very, probably a small portion of people's first language is English. Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is encouraging to see this community level um, drive to translate and distribute educational material. I just hope that is enough. Yeah, I think, I, I, to be honest, I don't think it's enough mm. because what I see is also what you are saying uh, in Zambia, Zimbabwe, everywhere where I've been, uh, the first thing people ask me about Bitcoin, isn't it a scam? Mm. Everybody knows someone who has been scammed and has lost money. And so education really starts very much at the basic level. Yeah. And mm. also, I think many people in the black communities don't trust white technology yeah because they they have been burned so many times by by people like us or me in a way like um that they don't trust it anymore and so yeah um that's hard work and i think you really have to go there there yes. need to be people and it yeah. doesn't need to be me but um it should m even more be the people from the community mm. uh, that bring that kind of education to them and uh, can counter the, the, the many scams we have. So I have the feeling that when I, whenever I go to these communities and um, what I try to do is to um, engage them, to, to learn about it, to educate the, the educators there yes. or who want, who want to build something. And I'm always extremely happy when that then happens and it's like a seed, you know, and people start building their own Bitcoin-only WhatsApp groups. Mm. This weekend will be the first Bitcoin-only meetup in Lusaka for people oh, to join. Fantastic. And also in Zimbabwe, I'm going back in June and we're, we're planning doing a meetup in Bulawayo and one in Harare. Mm -hmm. And I would really like, love to, to, to enable people to grow their own communities, like do the work that Hermann is doing uh, in, in the township in Mossel yeah. Bay, but also that the people on the ground do it themselves. But I think... There's so much English or also then in other yes. languages education, but still you need to know where to start. You need to know so where to start. That, so I still think it's, it's good building trust, going there, mm. talking with people and showing your openness and, and honesty yeah, in a way. And um, so I think, I think that's important too. Not only, I mean, education in all the languages mm. is very important. Yeah, sure. No, it definitely is, um, and but but at the same time, that is a double-edged sword because you you have, like I said, the scammers doing the exact yeah. same thing and seeding yeah. their little scam agents in the communities as well. So it's a very tricky and difficult thing, and um, maybe maybe we can't stop it anyway. Mm. All we can do is do as much as possible to do positive education. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's come back to a little bit of the history of Bitcoin. You were using Bitcoin very early on mm. or working with it in a way, exploring it. Um, on Twitter, I found one of your tweets saying, if I could uh, ask God one question, it is who is Satoshi? Yeah. Why is that so interesting to you? Well, because there's a, there's a lot of, um, I mean, so, so one thing that I really hate 
in this space is people claiming to be Satoshi. Yeah, so we know <laughs> we, we are all Satoshi ex except for Craig Wright. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and that annoys me. Also, coming from uh, sort of uh, a world of open source and Linux yep. um, and seeing the impact that patent trolls have on, mm -hmm. on those kind of uh, ecosystems where you have an idea that, that it's a pure idea, an idea of altruism, and then uh, it's attacked by um, opportunists and scammers. And so I would just, that's just, I would ask God, okay, who's Satoshi? Let's just lay it to rest. Was it Hal, Hal Finney or whoever? Yeah. Let's just lay it to rest and then just get rid of all these guys that's like scamming people. Mm. That would be nice in a way if you knew it's, uh, it has been, it was uh, Hal Finney because then yeah. that would bring an end to it. Yeah. And yeah. also, all the, always the first question, what happens if Satoshi moves his coins? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What do you think what would happen? Well, I mean, uh, the market would probably react quite um, heavily to that. Um, but one one thing that I try not to do is look at the price. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I try not to care about uh, market movements too much, except when it comes to the impact it has on people, like we're saying, like on um, in a, in a social context. But Really, for me, the question is whether technology works. The answer is pretty clearly, yes, it works. Um, and so at any price, it's useful to me. Yeah. So, I mean, if, uh, if there's a short-term drop, maybe even a spike, we never, the, the price never does what you expect it to do. Uh, if Satoshi's coins moves, um, that's uh, really not much uh, relevant to me. But it would be interesting. It, the, I, then I would wonder why wait until now or why not wait longer. Mm, mm. Um, what is uh, one of the most pressing questions you would ask Satoshi if you could? One of the most pressing questions, I would, I suppose I would ask, um, and again, this is to maybe to lay down the argument, but I would ask, given the, the ecosystem as it has evolved, because we have to take into account that things evolve all the time and there's new information that's available all the time. And so to get stuck on, um, old ways of thinking or the, the way we thought when we had less information than we have now, that, that to me is stupid. So I would ask Satoshi that uh, what he or she, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people get upset when I say he or she, but just come on, yeah, like we I don't know. know, so whatever, <laughs> uh, thinks about um, scaling into the future and whether it should be on-chain or off-chain. Mm -hmm. And he, again, that you see me... About that? He yes, she, there's, a, there's actually a, um, a number of posts about it. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you just take it at face value, then Satoshi was a big blocker. Oh. That is uh, on the Bitcoin <laughs> forums. There's some posts where uh, there's talk of nodes um, aggregating into big data centers. I mean, there's some debate about whether that means mining nodes or, mm. or not. And there's a lot of heated discussion about um, what constitutes a node. But uh, I guess I would just like to talk about that and clarify. Again, it's the engineer and technical part of me that's most interested in it. The economic kind of side of it. Mm. I, I, if mm. I could only ask one question, it'd be a technical question, definitely. Yeah, so the scaling question. The scaling okay. question, mm -hmm. mm, for sure. And um, one second, now I lost the question again that I just had. Um, Mm. I know it again. It's about altcoins. Altcoins. Yeah. 
So you're very technical and you have a technical perspective of Bitcoin and I guess also about the ecosystem, the cryptocurrency and blockchain uh, mm. uh, space around it. What is for you uh, the difference between Bitcoin and all the other altcoins? So it, it's, a, it's a, a question that will have a different answer depending on who you ask. Because everybody mm. has something that they want out of the system, right? Like probably most people, like I said. They just want to get rich. And for them, altcoins present a get-rich-quick way. It's, um, there's a lot more volatility they can trade. For me, um, the primary consideration, and I, I read this in your book as well, is um, the permissionless nature of a token. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, if I had to optimize for something in a token, it would be censorship resistance. Yeah. Um, and in that regard, I don't see anything competing with Bitcoin. I don't even Ethereum. Uh, I mean, with the, the move to proof of stake, that's um, that's going to be a new experiment. We'll see how that goes. If they ever. Yeah, I mean, if they do, <laughs> that's, uh, I'm an optimist, so hopefully it works. But um, that'll be a new experiment. That'll be new. So, uh, for example, I think I can't uh, understand at all why um, an entity like the World Economic Forum would make a tweet and say, well, you know, with a small, simple code change, Bitcoin mm -hmm. could become uh, very energy efficient. No, because that code change is maybe a change in the code, but the impact of that and the effect has not really been tested at scale. That's something that's still going to take five, 10, maybe 15 years to determine whether it's um, uh, viable. Mm -hmm. And so when, it just, when you just look at it from the perspective of censorship resistance, which goes with uh, decentralization, level of decentralization, then um, there's nothing for me that I feel that really competes with Bitcoin at this stage. And so I don't engage with altcoins at all. Um, I'm sure there's a space in the ecosystem for everything. If, you're, if you want to run decentralized applications, um, Web3, all of that stuff, that's fantastic and great. Um, but for me personally, it's about open source, permissionless, uh, global money system. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm just laser focusing on that. Yeah, me too. But most people don't want to have censorship resistance. Well, I, I guess well, that's true. Most people don't want censorship resistance. Um, but the problem with censorship is that it's, it's not always just applied in a fair manner. So we'd like to think censorship would be some responsible government entity um, that, that makes a rule based on the general contents of the public or whatever or to pr protect. That's not always the case. What you find in practice is that censorship is applied as a matter of policy um, by the gatekeepers of the, the financial ecosystem. So I can give you an example um, with this uh, company that we're forming now. It's called Crypto Convert, by the way in the sense that if, if you convert yourself, then you're a convert of crypto. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we don't hide the fact that it is a crypto or Bitcoin payments company. Uh, it's in the name. And I approached several banks, business divisions of the banks, and uh, I got a resounding no. We're not opening a bank account for you. When I asked them why not, oh. literally one of the responses I got was that crypto isn't real money. And therefore, we will not engage with uh, we will not engage with it. And I thought to myself, first of all, you don't have to. I engage with it. I just need to be able to pay my bills and and settle my uh, merchants, my customers. 
but second of all, I'm wondering like at what point that enters into anti-competitive behavior and, and mm -hmm. at what point there's actually a legal case made that they, they are um, uh, operating irresponsibly by taking this blanket statement. But again, on the other hand, so many scam companies out there, I kind of understand why they don't want to engage with it. Yeah, right. So it's, it's tricky. That's, my point is to censorship. It can be applied arbitrarily. Um, and so if you want to innovate in this space, you can't, it doesn't make sense to, to say, well, we, we need censorship. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the European Union just discussed a ban of proof of work mm. cryptocurrencies. And, uh, and also the travel rule, they want to have all very uh, strict regulation and banks always over-regulate yeah. already. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I also thought, okay, I'm, I'm going somewhere else now and uh, trying to find a place that's better suited for my work. Well, but yeah. I think that will be a global thing, right? Yeah, I've got bad news uh, in that regard. I don't think you're going to escape it. Mm. Uh, even in South Africa, whereas I don't think it's... Um, it's not a rule right now, but it it's probably will be implemented because of that uh, the financial action task force. It's which is recommending not it even a governmental uh, yeah. institution. Right? I mean, it. it um, uh, I saw a documentary on um, marijuana at some point and how it was banned globally oh. due to the actions of essentially one man from the United States for political reasons. Um, and then globally it being banned and, and criminalized. And this feels to me very much like that kind of similar situation. There's a small group of people somewhere. Um, they, they're part of the, the power, um, the status quo, and they are issuing now this global. And, and it's so sad to me that um, sovereign states don't uh, assign their own yeah. research uh, groups and, and think tanks to, to actually think about it. And they just accept whatever's being pushed down from Europe or America, wherever. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly the reason why we have this financial ex exclusion, in sorry, of two or three billion people in the exactly. first place. Yeah. yeah. So it's so sad, but also, I also always say it's like the drug on wars. Uh, the war. The drug on <laughs> the wars. The war on drugs. Yes. <laughs> the, drug on, the war on drugs, uh, like you just mentioned. So, and what, what has happened, uh, countries are now legalizing it, you know. Yeah, so, or, or you could say re-legalizing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's yeah, but I mean, if it's one of those things where if you look at the facts and the data, it doesn't make sense. The the rules that's enforced it doesn't make sense, and then what happens is you create a per perception that there's maybe some other agenda, mm -hmm. some hidden agendas in play, and people lose trust in the institutions and governments, and that I mean that's uh, that's also a massive problem in society. But, I mean, I think we can confidently say it's being driven by governments and regulators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're, they're basically shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. Sad thing. Yeah, quite sad. So, do you have any closing comments um, or maybe your view of the future of Bitcoin and Lightning? Um, like I said... It's, uh, it's always going to be a chicken and egg problem, the, the problem of adoption. So what is very encouraging to me is these, uh, are these projects like uh, Bitcoin Ikazi that Herman is driving, where we've got grassroots campaigns and, and adoption in, in communities from the ground up. 
And at the same time, we've got um, businesses trying to build solutions in the space and making it a lot easier. Um, and just in the, from, from my own engagement in the space the past couple of months, I've uh, sensed that there's a lot of energy that's, that's going into it. And that, that's very encouraging for me. It makes me feel like we're on the right track um, and that we're going to um, do some big things going into the future. I'm very bullish, <laughs> very, very bullish on lighting. That's cool. And uh, last thing I wanted to ask you, what are your views on privacy and coin joining coins and things like that? That's a, that is an interesting one. Um, uh, I don't personally engage with that kind of services um, just because I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like I've got anything to hide or whatever. But that's not a reason. This is me, yeah, my yeah, personal yeah, yeah. opinion. That is not a reason to say um, those services are bad because I feel like I'm in a very privileged position where um, the level of kind of, um, let's, let's say, scrutiny of my data actions is relatively low. But there are people living in, in more repressive um, societies and regimes where I feel it's very unfair the kind of, um, the kind of actions that the governments uh, take. And so in those kind of scenarios, that's one use case. Um, it makes a lot of sense to have privacy of your financial transactions. Um, and then you, you essentially you've got two options. The one is, like you say, some kind of a, a coin joint solution where you mix uh, your transaction with other, uh, other people's transactions. Uh, but then there's also a case to be made for privacy tokens. Um, Zcash and Monero that says, well, let's have privacy out the box, uh, which just makes the whole system as a whole a lot more private. So there's debate about that. Um, but as for me personally, um, I don't use coin mixes, uh, hmm. <laughs> but I understand why there's a need for it. Yeah, and I think I'm also thinking about like the more like people who don't have anything to hide or live in democracies, uh, the more we also do privacy protection, then we mm -hmm. also protect the people who need it more than we do. Yeah. So that's a thought behind but that. But you also, also protect the people who, who uh, abuse it, right? Yeah, but that's uh, that's a difficult topic mm. in the Bitcoin space. Like because Bitcoin is neutral, it can be used by anyone. It's like the the question of is it okay that the Ukraine and the Russians use mm. Bitcoin? Mm. Um, shouldn't we censor it? But then we are in that game again that somebody is deciding who's censoring what. Yeah, yeah and to that point, how uh, incredible is it that uh, the Ukraine government solicited Bitcoin uh, donations? Mm -hmm. I mean. I, I, I want to go back in time to 2011 and tell that guy from Nasper, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what? 11 years from now, a sovereign nation under attack by uh, Russia will solicit Bitcoin donations for a very good reason. Yeah, exactly. Anything we have not touched that you want to tell us? Um, I think in, uh, in if, if we look at maybe bring it back to South Africa, um, maybe just a final closing thought on, on Bitcoin adoption here um, that we didn't touch on is, um, I think in terms of our history, uh, it, it's quite uh, a difficult, difficult 
place that we come from, we come from an oppressive, oppressive regime um, by a minority that uh, oppressed the majority of people in this country. Um, and like you say, there's a distrust, there's strong distrust um, at all levels of society because now uh, we have a government that is, um, I mean, I think we can fairly, fairly say that it's, it's generally pretty corrupt, um, especially under the previous um, regime of president. So, so we live in a kind of a constant bubble of fear. There's always this underlying level of, of distrust and fear. And also to our, to, to our northern neighbors like Zimbabwe, we know there's, um, it, it's just across our border, but there's a chance of populist uprisings and hyperinflation. And um, so for somebody sitting in the United Kingdom or United States, maybe, you know, if you ask them, what is the use case for Bitcoin and crypto? They would say, well, nothing, because you can make an instant payment to my friend in, um, in Germany. Um, and, and there's little fear of, I guess, the inflation issue is on the table now, but there's a little fear of the kind of inflation we've seen in Africa. So um, for us, I guess it eats a lot closer to home. Mm. If you say, well, here's something that you can hold that, that's yours. You can take custody of it and nobody can take it away from you uh, by political or economical means. I mean, they can come to you, you with a wrench, right? The $5 wrench attack, mm -hmm. that's possible. But um, I kind of discount that because that's the, that single um, uh, case. But, but on a societal level, there's nothing that um, a government can, that our government can take it away from you. And so it's something that we can trust. And so the government's job is to build trust because the more trust they build, um, the less necessary it is to, to kind of try to build something that's uh, parallel. But sadly, that's not mm -hmm. what we're seeing happening. Sadly, we're seeing a um, continued deterioration of our public services, continued de deterioration of um, trust in public authorities. So um, I think in South Africa, for us, it's something that we uh, understand in a different light to mm -hmm. countries in Europe. And that's maybe also the reason for the high uh, rate of adoption here. Uh, very much so, I think. Very much so. It's uh, definitely driven by that and also people who are desperate and they just want to escape the cycle of poverty. Mm. Thank you very much, Karel. Thank you for this uh, educational <laughs> yeah, and also very interesting uh, insights. I mean, you're a long-time Bitcoiner. And uh, you have, have your own perspectives, which is refreshing. Um, uh, and yes, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for joining. If you've enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to my newsletter at anita.link news to get updates about new episodes. Thanks again to the Human Rights Foundation, to okcoin.com and leden.io for sponsoring the Bitcoin for Fairness educational program. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye.